Listener Production. So what prompts a 24-year-old to rush a stage and stab an author for a book that was published 34 years ago? Well, British-American writer Salman Rushdie, Sir Salman Rushdie, was stabbed multiple times just over a week ago. He's recovering, but he's expected to lose sight in one eye. So in this episode of The Briefing, we're going to find out what was actually in the book, The Satanic Verses, that outraged Muslims so much that the Iranian supreme leader issued a fatwa calling for Rushdie's death in 1989. And then finally, so many years later, this young man who wasn't even alive at the time the book was written has committed this horrific act of violence. So we're actually going to speak to a guy who was one of Salman Rushdie's students. I found him to be um, a great speaker in both his formal talks that he was given and the casual discussions I had with him. He's extremely likeable uh, with a very, very fine sense of humour. The Salman Rushdie stabbing, that is our briefing. Um, it's a pretty intense topic, obviously. Um, Katrina Blowers, how are you? Yeah, I'm really great, but probably not as great as you. You sounded <laughs> like you had another epic weekend on the slopes. Yeah, got down to Threadbow again. So, you know, the winter of my dreams continues and, yeah, went down with yes. my brothers and... So much fun, did so much skiing. My legs are so sore and we threw another party and this time we brought um, a bunch of drag queens to perform at our party. Oh, um, as you do. As you do. It was so, so much fun. But once again, in, I'm in the middle of this party down at Threadbow and a few blokes walk through the crowd yelling out, go the briefing, go the briefing. Oh, so, um, we love this. So shout out to those briefing fans. Um, hope you're listening right now. Let's get into the headlines. It is Monday, the 22nd of August. Well, we'll find out today whether Scott Morrison acted illegally when he secretly signed himself into several ministerial portfolios. The Solicitor General is going to be handing down legal advice. What the Solicitor General will advise on is, of course, the legal issues. Uh, There's uh, separate questions about uh, the functioning of our democracy, about convention. So that's the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. And as we found out last week, Morrison secretly appointed himself to five portfolios. Albanese has indicated the government could launch a broader inquiry into the issue and potentially a parliamentary punishment for Morrison. Yeah, so these reports indicate the Liberal Party is looking at potential replacements for Morrison in the seat of Cook, but apparently that won't be happening until after next year's New South Wales election, and that's uh, taking place in March next year. Yeah, and David Hurley, the Governor-General, is facing questions over why he didn't demand for the appointments to be made public. Um, He said he had no reason not to expect that they Um, would be made public. But after the first few weren't made public, you think he would have twigged that the next three weren't going to be made public as well. So it's also come to light that Hurley's official diary left out the five times he granted the former Prime Minister these additional powers. Australia is dealing with the second worst skills crisis in the developed world and there are calls uh, to let tens of thousands of foreign workers in. Yes, second worst skills crisis in the developed world. That comes from the OECD report. And a senior KPMG economist has said that this shortfall is costing our economy $80 billion a year. 
And New South Wales alone is forecasting a shortfall of more than 300,000 employees. This comes as the federal government releases the top 10 most in-demand professions over the next five years based on employer demand. Uh, Tom, our profession is not on this list, uh, <laughs> but what is on the list is electricians, preschool teachers, registered nurses, chefs, software developers and childcare workers. And Anthony Albanese has promised more TAFE and apprenticeship opportunities to help fill the gaps. But clearly that is going to take way too long considering we've already got this huge shortfall in workers. So this is still the pandemic affecting us. You know, Mm. we closed our borders for essentially two years and these overseas workers, you know, clearly um, perform so many important tasks in our economy and we're worse off without them. The daughter of an influential Russian ideologue who's often referred to as Putin's brain has been killed in a car bombing on the outskirts of Moscow. So Russian media reports are saying that the SUV that Dario Dugan was driving belonged to her father, Alexander Dugan, and he was the likely target because he'd only decided to travel in another vehicle at the last minute. Now, the Russian foreign ministry has speculated Ukraine is behind the attack but Ukraine denies any involvement. I'm not so sure that that's Ukrainian. Probably it could be some internal battles or internal fights. Alina Fravola there, who's the deputy chairperson of the Ukrainian Centre for Defence Strategy. Now, if Ukraine was behind this bombing, it would uh, be quite significant because it would be the first time they would have carried out an attack like this in the Russian capital. And the Transport Workers Union has called Qantas's apology to frequent flyers a stunt. So over the weekend, Qantas CEO Alan Joyce promised $50 in flight credits as well as lounge invitations and other perks to frequent flyer members as a way of saying sorry for the last few months of delays, lost baggage and poor performance. Yeah, 50 bucks. I don't know that that's going to uh, make up for the day of flight delays. I also missed reading the news one night because I couldn't get back from Melbourne. So cheers, Qantas. Uh, But the TWU National Secretary, Michael Caine, says if Qantas was serious, they'd be doing so much more like appointing a new chief executive with, quote, the business acumen to bring back highly trained, experienced workers and treat them with respect. Yeah, and what Michael Caine is referring to there is that Qantas outsourced baggage handling in 2020, which resulted in 1,700 redundancies, and that's been blamed for a lot of the chaos. So, yeah, a bit of tension there um, with their customers, but also their workers, and the airline will report its financial results this Thursday. And Singapore is ending its ban on gay sex, effectively making it legal to be homosexual. This will bring the law into line with current social mores and I hope provide some relief to gay Singaporeans. So that's the Prime Minister there in Singapore, Lee Sien Lung. And although the Prime Minister announced that they would be allowing homosexuality, uh, he also announced they would strengthen legal protections for the definition of marriage as between a man and a woman, so not moving so much on that front. In general, Asian countries are a long way behind the West on gay rights. India only decriminalised gay sex in 2018. And on same-sex marriage, uh, Taiwan allowed it first in 2019, and Thailand is in the process of that too. All right, Katrina, we'll catch you tomorrow. I'm about to go deep on Salman Rushdie's work.
All right, now to our briefing on Salman Rushdie. And for that, I'm joined by Rihanna Patrick. Hey, Rihanna. Hey. So British-American author Sir Salman Rushdie has been living with death threats since 1989 after the release of his fourth novel, The Satanic Verses. And 33 years on, Rushdie was on stage for a public lecture in New York the Friday before last when a 24-year-old man rushed the stage, stabbing him multiple times and also injuring the moderator. Yeah, this was such a shocking attack. Uh, Rushdie's 75 years old now. Thankfully, he survived, but he's likely to lose the use of one of his eyes and potentially one of his arms. So to discuss this, we found someone who knew Rushdie personally to explain what he was like as a person, but why his work has been so controversial. Emeritus Professor Vijay Mishra is from Murdoch University in Perth. Vijay, thank you for joining us. It's been over 30 years since that original fatwa was issued. So were you shocked by this attack? I might be one of those very few people who wasn't. The attacker, Hadi Mata, was only 24 and wasn't even born um, when the fatwa was declared by uh, Khomeini in 1989. The, the reason why I was not uh, shocked by it is that I feel that there was a kind of uh, sense of what we'd refer to as a sort of intergenerational trauma that, that the book may have generated, which meant that there was a discussion of it going on in, in Muslim households and so forth. And it stands to reason that um, that sort of discussion and so forth may have had an impact on this person, although he was not there when, when the fatwa was declared. And, and quite possibly, he had never even read um, the book book at all. Vijay, how did you cross paths with him? I mean, how much time have you spent with him and what is he like on a personal level? Well, um, this is a, a very interesting story. I mean, a lot of people don't know that um, he sold his archives to Emory University in Georgia for a considerable amount of money. But the very um, astute president of that university insisted that Salman Rushdie take on a five-year short-term professorship in creative writing. So that took place between 2006 and 2011 for five years he was there. And in that period, for three of those years, I used to go there for four weeks every year. And at that stage, um, I used to meet him and I found him to be um, a great speaker in both his formal talks that he was given and the casual discussions I had with him. He very eagerly signed all my first editions of his novels and works. He's extremely likable uh, with a very, very fine sense of humour. I think he really is extremely generous with his time yeah, uh, which is which is very rare for, for a writer of his class. So, VJ, did you in those conversations with him ever discuss the threats that he'd been living with for decades and how he felt about that risk? Um, no, no, that was one thing we we never discussed. You didn't bring it up directly with him in conversation, but did you sense from anything else you've read or heard about him in recent years that he felt that? the risk of any violence had abated? The feeling I got was that, that he was aware of this. He, he, he knew that uh, someone may uh, take it upon himself or herself to, to harm him, to, to attack him. 
that sense, I think, was always there. But um, after his period of isolation and under guard, so to speak, by the British, he got to know that, um, you know, there was always an, a degree of uncertainty about this life, although he, he tried to ignore it as much as he could. Vijay, can you tell me about, you know, for those who haven't read the Satanic Verses, a short summary of what that story was about? The Satanic Verses is actually a novel about migration. It's written in a kind of magic realist style. It actually begins with uh, two illegal Indian migrants who who um, survive a plane uh, disaster. The, the plane explodes in the air and these two people fall down from the plane and mysteriously, mystically, amazingly survive by falling in the in the English Channel. And, and so there's this notion of, of migration, movement of people. So these two people actually become illegal, in a sense, migrants to Britain. So what happens is that Salman Rushdie then tries to place this notion of migration and movement in the context of Islam itself, where a major movement, a major kind of shift takes place with Muhammad, who comes to to Arabia, to Mecca, to Medina, with a new message and a message of oneness. Everything is is one in Muhammad's thinking. One God, one idea, one people, one religion, and so forth. So here, uh, Salman Rushdie uses um, the, the Islamic example as a kind of allegory of a competition, shall we say, between the notion of multiplicity, many gods, many ways of doing things, uh, the diaspora entering into a Western nation states and, and mingling with it, bringing its own ideas and so forth. And so the, the Islamic incident became, as I said, sort of allegorical. However, what happened was that one of these characters, Jibril Farishta, which actually is uh, is in, in Urdu and in, in Farsi, um, a name that means Angel Gabriel. Farishta actually means an angel in, in, in Urdu and Farsi. So what, what happened was that um, this character is neurotic, is deranged, he has dreams and fantasies. And in the novel, um, he has fantasies about um, the transmission of the Quran to Muhammad, the prophet, and what he does with it. So what happens in the satanic verses is that uh, there is a strong suggestion in in this person's mind through whom this narrative is told that Muhammad may in fact have tempered with the message of the angel Gabriel, that that he may have um, changed it towards his own political ends and that Satan himself may have had a hand in it. There is also um, an incident in the in, in the imagination of Jibril Farishta, he dreams about it, where the names of the, the Prophet Muhammad's 12 wives are given to, to prostitutes. And, and this, of course, is an extremely, extremely touchy thing. Finally, Muhammad is actually never referred to as Muhammad in the novel. He's referred to as, as Mahund, which, as you know, is the, is the medieval name for the Antichrist. And uh, the great Dante himself in the, in the Divine Comedy had actually used that, so, that name. So, so there were 
items, elements in the satanic verses, which are clearly, clearly from the Islamic point of view, blasphemous. I think the belief is that Rushdie is culpable, that, that he, he put it there on purpose uh, rather than as part of a, a deranged imag- imagination of a character. So when the book was released in 1988 and the fatwa was then issued the next year, how seriously did Rushdie take that threat and how did it impact on his life? Well, I mean, he took it very seriously. Um, uh, so he was under 24-hour security up until almost um, 1996 or 98, I think. The threat was taken very seriously by him. So the danger was there. I mean, he, he, he knew it, that this was very, very serious. And the British government certainly knew but at some stage, I think um, the Iranian establishment and the government itself indicated that they were no longer party to it. And I think th- things began to improve and he began to live freely. And this happened especially after his uh, move from, from London to New York. And for the last 20 years, at least, um, he's been living quite freely, walking quite freely in New York, attending uh, many, many, many gatherings without any obvious security presence around him. Vijay, I mean, on that, I mean, in more recent times, that security around him, he has relaxed that. But, you know, why do you think he remains such a high profile target? I, I think in Islam, the, the sanctity of, of Muhammad is, is not negotiable. And I, and I think this is something one has to understand. It could well be that Muhammad has been deified in a sense, becoming almost like a godlike figure who's really untouchable. And it could be that any sort of um, debasement, shall we say, of that idea of untouchability, of, of that idea of sanctity, anything, anything that would fracture that kind of idea would fracture the religion itself. He cannot be represented in any form, in art, in literature, in, in music, in you name it. So that kind of um, reading of the prophet of a, of a great religion of the world is such that um, any, any kind of way of talking about him it's not negotiable. From what you know of Salman Rushdie, from meeting him personally and from his work, how do you think he'll be responding to what's happened? I, I think he will he'll respond in a in a in a very generous fashion. I think he would understand it, but at the same time, I think he would probably say that um, this is the price one pays. For art, he'd say that um, this is what happens when a freedom of expression is endangered, when um, institutions and religions and groups and and people generally do not accept. So I, th- I think he he may even be forgiving in so far as I can sense, because I think he is not a person who would uh, condemn the kind of action I'll try. That's Vijay Mishra from Murdoch University. Yeah, I found it really interesting to learn about the book itself and that it was a novel and the offensive part of that story was about a fictional character who was having 
deluded imaginations. I mean, you compare that to the hard-hitting non-fiction works of Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion or Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, which absolutely slam Christianity. So obviously very different traditions of critique there. And personally, I was devastated to see this attack because I think that in Western culture, the freedom to discuss and critique even the most sacred ideas and not be attacked for it with physical violence is a really important and beautiful part of our culture, which was violated by this attack. Yeah, and I think this attack comes after a long line of other possibly linked attacks uh, to the translators. Uh, There was a Japanese translator who died after being stabbed in 1991 who'd worked on the book that was never linked to this directly. There was a Norway translator who was shot at outside of their house um, and then there was an Italian translator who was also stabbed um, but survived. So I think this is another example of the fact that even though we're 33 years on, this fatwa and I guess people's offence at what was written continues. Tomorrow on The Briefing, why big numbers of young women are going off the pill. Listener.